Hey, welcome to the 37 Signals Podcast. I'm Matt Linderman. A little while back, the entire company gathered in San Diego, California for a company-wide meeting. And while we were there, I gathered three special members of the 37 Signals team together. Uh, Mark Embriaco. Joshua Searles. John Williams. We are the system administrators, so we keep everything up and running, kind of on a daily basis, I guess. We keep everything up and running. We set up new hardware. We set up new apps, make sure everything kind of continues to work. So if things are down, it's our fault. Most of the time. Sometimes. And also we are supporting programmers. I think that's a big part of our job is making sure that their workflow is really smooth so they can, when they de- deploy the applications, that it's always going to the right place and that uh, their code is being checked constantly for um, errors and tests and things like that. So. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode, what it's like to be a systems administrator at 37 Signals. Uh, keep in mind that John had only been working at 37 Signals for about a week when this conversation happened, so Mark and Joshua will be doing most of the talking. Uh, I started off by asking Joshua uh, about interacting with the programmers, if it's a big part of their job, and how often it happens. Yeah, definitely, on a daily basis, because uh, we also have to help support with tracking down issues with connectivity to the site or um, problems that go beyond the code, like people not able to access something or um, things like that. So we have to deal with uh, issues with uh, repositories of code as well. If someone needs a new a new repository of code or wants to update their SSH key, something like this, they have to go through us. So it's a pretty uh, tight uh, integration, I think. And like when you guys are out meeting people and they find out you work at 37 Signals, what are the most common questions you get? Huh, that's interesting. Uh, we get a lot of questions kind of when we're doing the four-day weeks about how that works. People are very interested in that, obviously, just because they're jealous. <laughs> um, I don't know, we get a, you know, it's, I, when I first moved to Raleigh, and uh, it's a couple years ago, I moved to Raleigh and started going to the Ruby meetups there. And when you say you work at 37 Signals, it's like you kind of get swarmed under by people that want to know what it's like. Is it, is it like what we talk about on the blog? Is that really real, or is that just kind of the public persona? Um, and, you know, I think really for the most part, it's kind of real, so... We, we kind of lay it out there with when we try new things and uh, you, the things we change with the teams and, and the four-day weeks and, and all that kind of stuff. People just want to know, if, are you guys really doing that or is that just something you write about on the blog? And what's the answer? Yeah, it is. I mean, <laughs> for the most part. I mean, if something doesn't work, we change it. If, uh, you know, we do the four-day weeks in the summertime, if when winter rolls around, if we feel like we need to catch up, we, we stop doing them for a while. We go back to them. I mean, obviously... Everything is real at the time. It changes over time. Now, all three of these guys had worked as systems administrators at places other than 37 Signals beforehand. So I asked them, what's the biggest difference between being at 37 Signals versus where they used to work? Here's John with his answer. Uh, people don't bug me. <laughs> like, you know, I work, you know, I work on what I'm working on and, you know, I can focus and, you know, I don't have my phone ringing. I don't have um, someone coming and tapping me on the shoulder. Um, and, you know, stuff like that as, you know, working in a cubicle before it was constant, you know, I'd be working on something and every half an hour someone would come and ask me a question or need me to come look at something or, you know, my computer's doing this and I'm not even supposed to be working on your computer. But. Yeah, I had the same experience. I've been here for about a year and a half and 
the, that was the thing that I really noticed uh, coming from other environments that were not necessarily larger, like you said, but um, more traditional, uh, less taking fewer risks about the way that the people work with each other, and above all, the, the lack of interruption, which was a little strange at first because I was so used to working in an office and having all these people coming and bothering you all the time. So I felt like it's kind of like this independent study where I would just come in, they'd say, here, take a look at this and, and figure it out. And you guys all work remotely? Do you think that's why? Because you're not actually physically in the office or it's a cultural uh, thing just with the way 37 Signals works? I think it's definitely a cultural thing. I mean, it's part of the, it's always been, seems to be have been part of the philosophy of the company of like minimizing interruptions. And it seems, even when I was in the office, that that's the way it was, that there were times when people would gather together and work on something together, but they're not always uh, assuming that, that they can just interrupt somebody. And I've, I've worked outside of the office before, you know, um, doing telecommuting, and, you know, I was constantly being bugged then, too. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely a change from most telecommuting positions, what are the challenges when it comes to hosting the 37 Signals apps? Sure. Uh, you know, what, what's our setup right now? Where, where do you see us moving forward to in the future? So um, when I started in October of 2006, I was the first system administrator we hired. And at the time, uh, we had something like, uh, we did something on the order of, I don't know, 50 or 60 or 70 requests per second across all of our applications combined. We had less than a terabyte of, of customer data that had been uploaded at that point. So files, attachments, that kind of thing. Um, we were on a total of 12 servers. Uh, we were at Rackspace. We're, we continue to be at Rackspace today. Uh, we've been there since early 2006. Uh, today, we do something like 350 to 400 requests per second. These are just Rails requests. They don't count. Things like campfire pollers, that's another couple of thousand a second. Um, style sheets and JavaScript assets, that kind of thing. That's probably another thousand a second, maybe at least you know five, six, seven hundred a second at a minimum. Uh, we have fifty-five to sixty terabytes of customer data now across fifty-five to sixty million files. Actually, it's about fifty million files. Um, you know, I think storage honestly becomes is the the most difficult thing for us to handle. We we use Amazon S three. Um, S3 is great, but there's a misconception out there that it's cheap. And maybe that's so at the smaller levels when you have 1 to 5 to 10 terabytes. Once you get up to 50 to 60 terabytes and you're talking about 10, 12, $15,000 a month, it's no longer that cheap. Uh, there's more, more cost-effective ways to do it. Like what? Um, so we're looking today, we're, we're looking to kind of evaluate the options of setting up a new environment. And we're looking at some of the traditional enterprise storage vendors, right? So it's this enterprise world that, that we hate so much. And, you know, you talk about, let's say you want to buy two hundred fifty dollars or $300,000 worth of hardware. If you turn that into a lease, you can very rapidly see that the cost for even buying that much hardware, which is, you know, very expensive, is still much more cost effective over, a, over the long term than S3. So we can get, you know, we could get 100 terabytes of this enterprise class storage for somewhere on the order of, you know, a half to two-thirds the price of what we pay for 60 terabytes at S3 today. And should have much better performance. Yeah, considerably better performance. So we, we do have issues with S3. The way that we work today is files get uploaded to us, and then kind of over the day, throughout the day, we kind of go off in the background and push them out to S3. Um, 
oftentimes the pushing them off to S3 part gets way backlogged. Because today, so back in 2006, we handled something like, uh, what was the number, 10,000 uploads a day to Basecamp. Maybe, uh, what did I say the numbers were yesterday? Five to six gigabytes a day. Today, the numbers are more like 90,000 files a day to Basecamp and more like 180 to 200 gigabytes a day. So that 90,000 files, we can get backlogged 15 or 20,000 files pretty, pretty regularly. So we store them locally, and, and we have this queue that pushes up to S3, and that can get backlogged pretty significantly if S3 is having a moment, <laughs> if S3 is being slow. But S3 has been great. It's allowed us to grow a lot easier than we could have, um, especially at Rackspace. That's one of the challenges we have at Rackspace is that you know, when you go with a managed hosting provider, you, you have to make a series of trade-offs. You're trading off the fact that you don't have to manage the hardware, you don't have to control the environment, you don't have to deal with vendors, you don't have to deal with maintenance. You trade that for flexibility. So you end up using what they have, what they have on their kind of menu of services. And what most of these types of vendors, and it's not just Rackspace, it's kind of across the board, they don't really have solutions that fit kind of our growth pattern for storage. We're growing. Uh, today we have, like I said, about 55 to 60 terabytes Today, that's growing about four terabytes a month. This time next year, we expect we'll be growing that at seven or eight terabytes a month because we're kind of seeing a year-over-year -year doubling there. And at that kind of trajectory, S3 really doesn't make sense anymore because just the cost of storage is not that great. And as you're investigating new options, what's been surprising to you? The vendors are really irritating. It's, it's a whole, you know, the way that these guys do business is incredibly annoying, right? You'll talk to them. You know, ask what the list price is, and they'll ask you what you're willing to spend. Or they'll ask you what your budget is. And all I want to know is how much it costs. Don't screw around with me. Just tell me what it costs. Or you'll go to Dell, who, who does have list pricing, and you'll say, look, I want to buy these 40 servers. How much does it cost? And they come back to you with a quote, because they have formulas for this, right? They say, hey, you're buying $250,000 worth of hardware. You get this percentage off. And they come back with a quote, though, and that quote is like 45 or 50% off a list price. And it's just, you know, these, these, why can't you just give me the real number? Why do I have to go back and forth? Why do we have to play these games and waste each other's time? I've literally spent the last two months going back and forth with vendors, negotiating contracts, trying to get good pricing. And it's just, we could have saved each other a lot of time if they just told me what they were willing to sell it to me for from the beginning. You know, you go to one vendor and you, you think you've made your decision, right? You're like, okay, so I chose this storage vendor over here. I'm willing to pay them X. And you go back to this other guy who was more expensive. And you say, hey, I decided I'm going to go with these guys. Thanks for all your time. Um, and they say, oh, but wait. We have a, a new special price for you that's 20% less than the other guy. And, I mean, there's just so much of that in the industry. And when it comes to making the decision, how much does the actual physical space where the machines and the hardware are going to reside, how much of a factor is that? It plays into it some. You know, if we have the same amount of storage or the same amount of systems and, you know, somebody's 20% more expensive but they take up half the space, that makes a pretty significant difference because, you know, John made the point yesterday that data center real estate is kind of the most expensive real estate on the planet. To buy a, a cabinet that's six feet high and, you know, a couple of feet wide costs you a couple of thousand dollars every month. So, you know, when you, you kind of, you take this piece of storage, maybe you're going to pay, I don't know, maybe you're going to pay $500 a month for the server and you're going to pay another $100 a month just for the space that it sits in. So it definitely plays a factor. And do you go investigate the actual storage facility? And if so, what do you look for when you're there? Yeah, so we, we have visited one data center so far. Um, 
we've seen kind of pictures and video of some of some others. Actually, I've visited three days here so far. I've visited a couple in the local Raleigh area, um, and I've visited one in Chicago. And what you look for is you look for the, the level of redundancy they have. Um, you know, if, if they lose power, how many generators do they have? How many generators do they need to run the system? Um, how much cooling capacity do they have? How many, you know, how many chillers do they have? How many do they really need to run the system? Uh, you you look for at least n plus one, which means if they need three chillers, they have four. Um, the facilities we like the best are the ones that have n plus two. So if they need two generators, they have four generators. If they need six, they have eight, so that they can withstand some failures there. Uh, you look for places that have good track records. That you know, you ask them what their their uptime history is. Have they had any major events that have caused downtime in the last couple of years? Um, you look for what networks are available within that facility because different networking providers are in different facilities. Uh, you look at what kind of power density they can give you. You know, do they? That's a problem with a lot of data centers today is they have limited amounts of power because you know equipment has gotten a lot physically smaller, but the amount of power it consumes hasn't. So you stuff more things into a rack these days than you used to and it consumes a lot more power. So you look for facilities that can provide enough power. There's, there's a lot of variables. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the redundancy is the number one thing, right? So you go to the facility, you say, okay, look, you have N plus two power, you have N plus two chillers, you have N plus two um, you know, incoming water to feed the chillers, you have, you look for the places that have the most redundancy. Uh, I know one thing we've been talking about is trying to improve speeds in Europe. Uh, what are the tactics that you do for something like that? Yeah, we're looking to a few different options there. Um, part of it is on um, the code side where we have to look at ways of optimizing the way we use JavaScript and CSS and, and optimizing our applications in general to, to feel faster, even if uh, the actual response time for something that happens on the site is uh, slower. There. What do you mean by feel faster? Um, this is something that people like Facebook are very good with. It's, it's, um, they've written a few blog posts about it. It's um, like, for example, when you click on a to-do list and you check off a to-do item, right now in our interface you, you see a, sort of a, a spinning thing that tells you well, doing this action and when it finishes it, there's a flash of some kind. Now, for example, there what you can make happen is as soon as you click on that to-do item, it immediately gets checked off and then in the background the actual action happens. So it, you perceive it to be instantaneous while the action that's get, that tends to be slower is happening in the background. This type of perception is very important. You'll notice on something like Facebook when you hit confirm or send a message everything is instantaneous. So it feels really fast but what's really happening there is that they um, <clears throat> make the window disappear and then they run this action in the background. If there's some kind of problem it will tell you but most of the time it doesn't fail. Um, and that makes that what uh, the perception of speed is much greater, and that kind of, those are the kind of techniques I think we're going to start looking into to make our applications more usable. But on the technical side, there's a, other options. There's some commercial services. I believe Akamai provides one, which is called application acceleration, where you can they'll route traffic from specific locations through dedicated connections that they have, which don't pass through the, the traditional steps that requests would take from one place to another, from Europe to the States, for example. <coughs> and uh, that just makes the traffic go faster. 
and it's uh, we haven't looked too much into that yet, but I think this year is definitely as we're considering making these infrastructure changes is something we'll consider looking into. Um, other caching technology that we can use, uh, setting up proxies in locations in Europe that uh, cache some of content that we provide in our applications, and uh, these are the things, two things we're looking at right now. But personally, I think the first thing I talked about, about code optimization, is a, a more important place to look for for improving speed, because uh, those are those are the kind of things I've noticed the most on, on other sites. Living in Spain, I feel that the pain of slow applications all the time, and uh, definitely the ones that that have shown the most improvement are ones that make those kind of interface changes, make the interface easier to use. Since you've been working at 37signals, what's been maybe the most surprising thing to you, or is there something that, you know, boy, I wish I'd known this back when I started? I'd, see the, I'd say the main... Uh, surprise and or challenge has really been uh, working in such a dynamic environment that we're always trying to um, use the latest versions of Ruby on Rails, the latest versions of different pieces of software, working with web servers and so on. And we like to do this because it, it gives us uh, insight into features that could make our applications better, not just the code that we're writing, but the software that we use to support it. And uh, Sometimes that can lead to uh, mistakes, lead to sort of over-eager upgrading of something that can, can cause a problem. And that it's been a challenge to find the balance of you know, when, when you should hold back and, and leave something in an older version, even though the newer version is faster or, or makes writing code easier. Like that's, that's been a challenge. But it's, I think, it was definitely a worthwhile one because uh, it's easy to, to say that you hear a lot of system administrators talking about how they're very conservative and that their job is to prevent people from making those types of advances and ch making changes that will break something. And I, I kind of disagree with that that way of thinking and that your job is to do your due diligence if there is something that should be changed to make sure you test it in the right way. But you can't, nothing can just stay the way it always is. Everything has to, to move and change and, and that's the most important thing is being able to manage those changes effectively. Yeah, there's definitely been some growing pains. We, you know, when I started, the, the amount of traffic we had, we could kind of shoot from the hip sometimes. We could do deploys in the middle of the day. We could roll out major changes in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. Um, these days, when you look and you see tens of thousands of companies that are using Basecamp every day, for example, if we're down for, you know, 20 minutes in the middle of the day, that impacts a lot of people. A lot of people can't do their work. A lot of people you know, have problems with presentations they're trying to give. So the impact has definitely changed. We have to be a lot more careful than we used to. But your Joshua is exactly right. At the same time, we don't want to be too conservative. We can't just kind of set and stagnate forever. There's a lot of changes happening all the time, especially in the, the Ruby and Rails worlds that we're in. You know, things change at a ridiculous rate. We've been through three or four different web servers, three or four different proxy technologies, different caching technology. You know, different web servers, different application servers. And for the most part, our users haven't noticed. I mean, they, they don't see a change, which, I mean, we're doing mostly right most of the time. We have had mistakes. I mean, things are breaking, break sometimes. We, we, you know, we think we have something adequately tested, and we don't, and we, we make a mistake. But, you know, for the most part, it's, it works pretty well. Yeah, as I heard someone say yesterday, when you have this number of customers, one in a million is a lot more common. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely true. 
I think a key um, to our making fewer mistakes and learning from them has been automation, which is, I think, really the key to, to this type of work in general, is making sure that the changes you make are repeatable, and that every time you make this change, uh, you know you have some place where that change is recorded, just like you would writing code. Like, system administration should be the same kind of work as, as writing code. And in our case, it is. That's, we spend a lot more time now doing that than when traditional system administration was logging into a machine and, and messing around on the machine and installing packages and having to do that maybe on 20 or 30 or 200 machines. And now there's a lot of tools that we use that help us make all these changes very repeatable and we can roll back those changes if we need to. And uh, I think that's that's really been the biggest, most important change we've made in the last couple of years. From a personal life standpoint, what's it like to, are you guys always on? You always have to be available? Any horror stories of being things happening in the middle of the night or while you're on a plane or something like that? Yeah, you know, it happens, you know, pretty frequently that we'll get pages in the middle of the night for something. Uh, you know, usually when we get a, a, uh, an alert, it's not that the site is down. It's that one server is having a problem or something like that because we're kind of over, over eager with the way we do alerts today on purpose because we want to get we want to catch things as early as possible so we, we do get a lot of alerts uh, we do have a lot of little niggling things that happen once in a while uh, in, in general it's not too bad I, I got one last night did you get that one too not yet <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I got one last night I had to wake up in the middle of the night it we had a couple of servers that were acting funny for about 30 seconds it was long enough to wake me up and, and go look at it does your wife start getting annoyed when when the she doesn't get so much annoyed in the middle of the night. What really gets her is whenever we go out, if we go out to dinner, we don't... So this is one of the things we need to improve. We, we don't have an official on-call rotation, so we're all kind of on-call all the time. So I take my laptop with me absolutely everywhere I go. And there have been a number of times when we go out to dinner and I'll get paged in the middle of dinner and have to fix something. So, you know, I kind of... I temper that a little bit, right? Because if I get if I get a, an alert in the middle of dinner and I have to go out to the car to work, 37 Signal flies dinner for my family that night. <laughs> And that'll wrap it up for the sysadmin edition of the podcast. Uh, if you want to see links related to this episode, you can go to 37signals.com slash podcast. And there's also links to all the previous episodes there, too. Thank you for listening. Bye.